these are places where money is going to be flowing and, and it's at the mouth of the, the river. You know, go go to the mouth of the river um, and, and invest in, in those businesses. So I think there's just like any other time of change, tremendous opportunity. This is not like, oh, markets are going to be tough, like you know, coal up in a corner and keep your money in cash. No, I think this is a time of an inflection point in markets. And, and I think you're going to see some very huge opportunities in terms of active management, being in the right place, along the right place and short, uh, you know, the, the right place. I think those are ultimately you know, those tremendous opportunities. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Global Macro Series with Jim Kazang and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where today we wanted to create a different episode compared to our usual format, namely without a guest, but instead a conversation just between Jim and I. For those of you who are regular listeners to the Global Macro Series, you know that both Jim and I have concerns about where the world and the financial markets are heading. And in fact, many of the issues we face today, like the high inflation and rising interest rates, are topics that we have flagged on this podcast for more than two years, um, when no one else really was talking about it. Unfortunately, the list of challenges we face today have has grown a lot, so there should be plenty to talk about today. And we very much look forward to sharing some of our views with you in perhaps a more conversational, freestyle, free-flowing format than usual, instead of just asking the questions. But first... Before we dive into all of this, let me say hi to you, Jim. It's great to be back with you today. And uh, how are you doing? How are things in the Windy City? Wonderful, wonderful. I uh, it's nice to not have a guest today, and actually, uh, I'm looking forward to kind of diving in and, and having a conversation with you. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Now, I wanted to ask you to begin with maybe a little bit about all the conversations that we've had so far in the Global Macro Series with. Some truly amazing guests uh, I would like to add. Um, maybe what are some of the things um, and um, some of the people perhaps that have made the biggest uh, impression on you and perhaps even shifted some of your views um, that you had before when it comes to global macro topics? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a tremendous list of guests. I've uh, I've definitely learned probably uh, you know as much if not more than the guests have, um, and it definitely has helped give me conviction in some ways um, on certain ideas and and definitely uh, bend uh, some of my views uh, on others. Um, Peter Zahan obviously was a was an awesome episode. Uh, I mean he's really out there pushing some some important ideas, um, particularly his views on um, on China, I thought really were very different than than a lot of uh, ideas I held and, and I've definitely bent. Uh, more his way. I think we're seeing more of that happening, um, particularly as it relates to demographics and 
uh, you know, uh, their, their weakness in terms of commodities. Um, you know, uh, obviously he was out there talking about these things before the dollar strength we saw. So I think that was very telling. Um, and he's been fairly right so far on a lot of these topics, uh, including about Russia. Um, I really enjoyed our recent conversation with Mac Ralph and Andreas Steno, partially because they really uh, disagree a lot with my inflationary views and it's made me test and, uh, you know, have a bit more conviction. Um, I, uh, but it's, it's always good to hear the alternative view and, and to really test yourself. And, and, and that's, um, I think been really interesting. Loved our conversation with Peter Atwater uh, and the socio, uh, socionomics uh, piece, which I thought was very um, in line with a lot of my views in some ways, but also really helped uh, kind of take it a step further uh, on, on several levels. Uh, and there's so many others, Grant Williams, Pippa Mongram, Fed Guy, uh, right? Uh, and Adam Rosenzweig. Adam Rosenzweig as well was actually one that I think I, I got a lot out of in terms of uh, energy um, and, and some of the history of energy and, and what that um, what that has meant for um, you know, the, the, the world in the past and what that's likely to mean, uh, you know, bigger picture. Um, so I think that's very important, especially given where we are in history. So just a couple, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much, uh, so much in there to, to, you know, to tear apart and, and, and dive into. And, and it definitely has informed a lot of my views. What about you? Yeah, no, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And, and obviously some of the guests you mentioned there, I think they also made a big impact. I think, again, I would say, I mean, what did it for me with Peter Zion, and of course he's someone who has this uh, wonderful way of being uh, quite certain about a world that is full of uncertainty, <laughs> and I love that. Um, and But what he helped me do is actually kind of piece together um, some of the challenges that's been in my uh, wheelhouse, which has been the trend-following world, right? Because we did have a uh, a five-year spell, uh, 2015 to 2020, where things were much more challenging than what we have seen. And a lot of people were saying, well, trend following is dead and all of that. And and actually, his recount of how we got to where we are, but I have to say also combined with the conversation that, um, uh, that we had um, with Kevin Coldine, or you and I didn't have that, but but that I had with Kevin Coldine, who's obviously doing a lot of the um, uh, conversations we have now in the Ideas Lab uh, series. But he, but his book uh, that he or that, that he co-authored, The Rise of Carrie, that combined with Peter's framework from what happened post the Second World War and and all of that, um, and then the rise of Carrie, that regime, and how. He also believes that it's falling apart at the same time as Peter Zion is saying we're deglobalizing, de which is the same is the same as saying, well, the the stable world that we have lived in uh, is 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 coming to an end. That helped me a lot actually to frame the the strategy that I work uh, with um, and how it all fits together. So that was very very useful. But I agree with you in terms of the other guests. I mean, all the other guests have been uh, fantastic. There's something in each of of the conversations that is worth, um, you know, revisiting from time to time. And of course, we will be revisit revisiting some of these topics with the guests themselves. Um, I think we have Adam on uh, next month already. So this will be uh, an incredibly interesting part as well as of, of our journey um, to kind of follow up and, and uh, hold them a little bit accountable like we are Absolutely. with our performance, I guess. Absolutely. So, um, so it'll be good. Anyways, uh, I appreciate for the, I appreciate you for this uh, kind of uh, um, sharing that. Now, some of the things that I would like to cover with you today, 
is things like the role of central banks today. Uh, you know, both their current and potential future politics and the implications of them. Are we going for a hard landing or soft landing, a crash? Who knows? Um, also, the kind of inflation we're facing. Is it going to be inflation, stagflation, deflation? Things like that. I also would love to hear your thoughts on some of the many um, asset classes that we uh, that we touch in our lives um, and um, maybe some specific markets. Um, lots of people, of course, are thinking about whether we are doing, whether we are experiencing kind of short squeeze or a bear market rally or whether this is the beginning of the next bull market. So love to hear your ideas around that. We, we definitely need to talk about kind of positioning for an uncertain future, uh, what your thoughts and maybe to round things off. Um, maybe we shouldn't leave out the good old geopolitics and uh, maybe even some demographics. Um, maybe we throw in a bit of crypto. We did talk to Nathaniel about crypto as well. Who knows? So it'll be fun. It'll be unpredictable. Um, but I think we have a lot of uh, things to talk about. So perhaps we can start with the Fed. And, um, and this, of course, applies to more than just the US uh, Federal Reserve. What are your current thoughts on the Fed? And maybe you can also maybe start out with putting, kind of building the historical framework um, that we might need. Yeah, I think the Fed is the right place to start. Um, and it's, uh, I think so few people appreciate um, how central uh, the Fed is and how central monetary policy has been, not just to the economy, but broadly to geopolitics, broadly to, you know, these issues of inequality and, and, and the fabric of, you know, and te technological development and globalization, all of these things, which are so important to all of our lives are, you know, the driving factor in my view has been the Federal Reserve. Um, you know, I'll start at the very beginning, you know, here in the United States, uh, you know, we, the, the U.S. was created um, in opposition to a king, right? Uh, and we created a structure that was very much um, you know, about equality and justice and liberty. And our founding fathers here created a constitution, which has itself affected many other constitutions and governments around the world, um, that was uh, had lots of checks and balances. And that was purposely to help protect and safeguard kind of these issues of equality and justice from the, the power, the corrosive powers of the power. Um, and, and I'm starting there because I think it's important to understand that the Federal Reserve was uh, you know, the, in the U.S., because laws are hard to pass, and now it's true for a lot of other democracies, the, it's been made, uh, you know, we had many, many business uh, cycles, uh, a lot of crises along the way. We essentially needed crises in order to pass new laws. Um, that's, was on, that was on purpose. We didn't want laws to be passed without unanimity um, um, in, in the system. But people got sick of that. Uh, and after some time, uh, people said, well, look, we don't want crises all the time. And so we created an extra governmental power called the Federal Reserve. Uh, and, and I think that's important to understand that this Federal Reserve was meant to smooth out the business cycle. But crises are ultimately very critical to the functioning. You know, cycles matter. Uh, you need relieving of stress. And you don't want to smooth out the business cycle too much because if you do, the crisis is build and build and build and reform doesn't happen and change doesn't happen. Um, I think that's something that's not talked about enough. It's a very important uh, thing that's, that, that's, uh, that's happened here. So the Federal Reserve, after, you know, uh, Nixon took us off, uh, the gold reserve, uh, you know, the gold, the gold standard, sorry, became dramatically more powerful. In a world of fiat, they can do unlimited things. They're no longer bound by some, some uh, force, uh, some, some ultimate value. 
And that central bank power starting in, in 72 grew exponentially. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, the last 50 years, um, you know, the role of the, the Fed and its power um, has ultimately defined almost everything that we see around us. Um, and, and so, yes, you have to start with the Fed. Um, and, and what has it done? Uh, it is, it is, you know, we've gone to monetary policy dominance, essentially, almost exclusively, uh, the, the, the central bank has controlled the economy. And they have very limited, uh, you know, uh, tools. They have one tool, monetary policy, essentially. Um, and they have only two objectives. It's a very simple structure. They didn't, you know, the government didn't want to hand over that purse strings, obviously. They wanted to give it some checks and balances. But instead, we've created something that's completely, uh, you know, in control of the economy that is uh, unable to fully uh, control it properly. And, and nor does it look at the big picture and control things like inequality and, uh, you know, other issues. So um, you give incentives and you see the results. And so these are the incentives that have been laid out in front of the Fed. It's a bunch of academics that are trying to maintain price stability um, and maximum employment. Right. Very simple, uh, you know, objectives and a very complicated economy with monetary policy. So what do you get if, if that's the dominant thing? You don't get any governmental reform. You don't get new laws. You don't get uh, people worrying about the issues of inequality and other issues that, that we've talked about. Um, and so you go to free market economics on steroids, um, and, and the response is always more free, uh, you know, free market economics, um, more oxygen, more money into the system to control any time that there's a pullback. And ultimately, that leads to, uh, uh, you know, all that. What, what is monetary policy? Monetary policy goes to the top. Monetary policy, who borrows money? Wealthy people borrow money. People at the bottom don't borrow money. To the extent they do, it's a very small portion. Um, you know, there is some that goes to the rest of the economy, for sure. But it really is supply-side economics. You're giving money to capital. Uh, you're giving unlimited resources. And what has that caused? That's caused, uh, you know, uh, in growth. You know, the duration trade, obviously, for 50 years has been dominant created technological revolution. Again, we've talked about this uh, on the show before, but, but you know, uh, during my time growing up, I grew up with the Jetsons and, and uh, you know, 1984 and the 2000 Space Odyssey, the future never came soon enough. It was always way further than you'd ever expect. Then all of a sudden, you know, in the last 20, 20, 30 years, we've seen this massive acceleration where the, you know, the future that you expect in a year happens in three months. And so that's been because of unlimited monetary policy. We have completely created a technological revolution here. And most people would say, that's great. That's wonderful. Look how much that's improving our lives. Sure. But the more you send money, there, there's cost to this as well. The more you send money to capital, um, the more we get inequality. The more uh, the, the people at the top make more money. Uh, labor power reduces because of technology, uh, because of uh, globalization, because of corporations becoming more efficient. You send money to corporations, they're profit maximizing. They're going to create an incredibly efficient system, raw and tooth and claw, right? That's what nature does, um, devoid of, of the average human being's uh, you know, needs. Uh, and that's what, where government should come in in some form or another. So long-winded kind of intro, but but I just wanted to kind of lay the groundwork for how important it's been um, for, for you know where we've gone. Um, in the 19... Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, now a little bit of history that's not necessarily just Federal Reserve, government, and before that, government was broadly much more active, and particularly during that time, um, you know, uh, the Great Society Program by LBJ uh, was introduced, um, much like we had an impetus uh, recently to uh, a populist policy, they had an impetus then, 
JFK had all these ideas. He was a young, uh, vibrant, uh, popular president, but couldn't get them passed when he when he got assassinated in in, in, in 19, mid 1960s. LBJ had a broad initiative from from the whole country, and that was the the spark. Much like COVID was the spark, now uh, that that kind of set off this great society program. Once it got started, uh, there was a demand for it to begin with. Once it got finally started, by and both sides bought in at unanimity. It's very popular. Um, and uh, once you start addressing inequality, uh, you send money to people, people start buying more goods. It's a demand side economic response. That demand side economic response created less labor, right? More uh, you know, labor supply because people are making more money. Uh, they don't, they don't want to work for the same terms. Uh, they start getting more union power, which we got a, a lot of during that time. You also go from a geopolitical, and that's how geopolitics comes into it, cooperation from a cooperation game where everybody's working together towards profit maximization and, and global, you know, globalization to a, a period of much more geopolitical competition. Um, and we've seen that throughout periods of inflation and fiscal uh, policy dominance. And that's what we saw during that time with Vietnam, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the OPEC crisis. So a lot of these things people think are separate things. They point to them as the cause for the inflation. But what people don't realize is they all cluster. When you start to get inflation, you actually get more populism, you get more geonationalism, you get more uh, xenophobia, you get more global conflict, and, and you really are more of a, uh, a negative feedback loop of, um, of competition. So it's not a surprise that you know, what we saw during that time echoes in so many ways across so many different vectors um, in this period. Um, and it really is about rebalancing and about this idea of, of rebuilding a middle uh, class uh, lowering inequality. Again, this this is a story as old as time. So, um, and here we are on historic, you know, uh, inequality in the world after 50 years, uh, 40, 40 plus years of monetary policy dominance, dominance, and we're doing the same things of that period. Um, the Fed uh, is set to, is supposed to control price stability and maximum employment. Um, they can easily do that uh, through, uh, you know, the control uh, inflation by doing more monetary policy, as long as they're not worried about something like inequality. If there aren't people in the system, we're just going to maximize GDP, create technological innovation. That's deflationary on its own. Then you do more. That ultimately drives the economy forward in its optimal positive feedback loop. But if you are going to deal with fairness and justice and these things that are not natural constructs and give people in the middle, some level of equality and fairness um, that is ultimately going to short circuit that benevolent cycle. And the Fed in that situation really can't uh, control inflation. These are structural inflation. And there's two forms. There's structural inflation and there's the psychological piece that makes it makes it worse. We've broadly been told um, that that structural uh, inflation is not really an issue. It happens here and there, but then it's really the psychological piece. As long as the Fed comes in and short circuits that uh, that long-term inflation expectation, things will go back to normal. Um, that ignores the very important kind of 40-year-plus cycles we've seen where there's structural causes, which is really addressing inequality and populism. And that's such an important thing that's not discussed and not broadly understood. Um, so people believe because of the last 40 years that the Fed has has uh, this this uh, credibility and control that they, they can do anything because they broadly have been able to with monetary policy dominance when inequality wasn't a problem. But when populism builds, uh, it causes inflation, fiscal response, which causes inflation, which causes more, ironically, more populism. 
And these are pent up things that, that uh, you know, that you can't solve 40 years of inequality in, in a year or two. Um, and honestly, the more the Fed gets involved, the worse they're going to make it. That's what happened in the 60s and 70s, because the more you try to get a crisis, right? We talked about the lack of crises, not cost solving problems. The more we have crises because the Fed needs to cause it to, to trim inflation, let's say, right, by, by raising interest rates the more the response by government is going to be more fiscal response. That's what we've seen in the 60s. That's what, you know, that's what price controls are. Price controls are more fiscal policy. Um, you know, people probably don't understand this. We're, we're seeing it. And we've been calling, you know, you and I have talked about this quite a bit, but we've been calling for it the last two years. And those policies, one after another, keep happening. Um, and people are almost like amazed. Like, how don't they, under, does the government understand that fiscal policy causes inflation? Why are they doing this? Because people are you know, for 40 years have, have dealt with inequality and they want it fixed. And, and, you know, now we're having to deal with that. We get, this is, this is what fiscal policy is. Um, yeah. And we may not want inflation, but guess what? We want more equality and, and that's more important to the people. Right. I think that's the thing uh, we're missing. So long winded answer to your question, but I thought, I feel like that'll set us off at least on the right trajectory. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, uh, history always is uh, incredibly useful to understand these uh, issues because uh, as as we, I think most people um, would agree with, uh, we tend to repeat the same mistakes we've made before. So um, so why not now? Um, seems like uh, as good as time as any. So, so yeah, that's very useful. And I mean, when I hear you say all of this, the, the question is, I mean, th- another thing, by the way, that I always found interesting is that um, the people, at least that's how it seems to be in in, in the public uh, domain, that the people who causes the crisis are also the ones that are commissioned to fix the crisis that they created. Uh, it usually doesn't happen like that in the private sector. They seem to be uh, quickly to find new people to do so. Um, but it almost sounds like it's, um, it's an impossible task um, in a sense that they have. And, and as I mentioned in our introduction that, you know, we, we, we give them all, we, we think their role to a large extent is to sort of keep the, the, the steer deflation and ideally to a steady and predictable level of inflation. And then I can't remember exactly when, but someone came up with this 2% inflation target, which I think they just took out thin air, but that's really become sort of what we all expect. And as you rightly say, uh, we very often think about you know, when will we go back to how things used to be? And I think most of us uh, of our generation and younger would say, well, that's the 2% inflation target. That's that's the norm. Even though, if, as you rightly say, if you go back in history, that may not actually be the norm. Um, but this kind of Goldilocks idea that uh, central banks can control inflation and maybe unemployment as well. I mean, how much control do they really have? I mean, could we argue that... This is, these are just cycles that happen, and we we've seen this before. It'll happen again, and and there really really isn't that much they can do to change uh, the course of of where these um, steering tools are going. Yeah, I think they have a, a very uh, hard time controlling secular trends. Um, yeah, I think obviously in the short term they can. Uh, cause crises. They can remove capital from the system altogether, especially from very high levels of capital being deployed, um, and 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 cause uh, you know cause a major drop in the, you know in the markets and and um, and and cause uh, you know malinvestment to be liquidated and all the things that have you know have happened over fifty years. But um, the secular trends, uh, which are political, right, um, which are about people. 
they they really can't um, uh, you know control, especially once that you know they could control it. If they were thinking more about the long term, they they would have not done this much monetary policy. They would have found a way to work with government or um, you know. But when you're in the middle of a crisis and the world turns to the Fed and says you save the markets, and they have one tool, um, they're going to do more of the same. Um, and, and that's just going to create longer term problems. So it's really this short termism, this uh, you know, stopping any potential short term problems. And that builds pressure in a system. You can't solve all the problems and optimize to current GDP growth and not take something, you know, not cause a bigger problem. That's a very, um, you know, and people like to think that, oh, we've, you know, the Fed, it, it's, you know, Janet Yellen said we've, you know, eliminated the business cycle, right? Like, uh, Sure, in the short term, but you've just created a bigger cycle and bigger problems down the road. And I, and I think that's that's the big takeaway. I should have added maybe to my question something that you wrote about in your recent uh, newsletter. And actually, because I guess what I was trying to say is that you sometimes go through periods where actually these Fed chairmen, they kind of do the same thing, but the result that they get is very different. And and I think you know where I'm going uh, with that. I think that's super yeah. important. I don't think... You hear so much, uh, you know, the narrative is about, you know, the Fed starting with Volcker almost, right? You don't hear about the Fed before that that much, um, which I find, uh, and to the extent you do, it's almost like, oh, those guys, they didn't know what they were doing, right? They they were asleep at the at the wheel. Um, and that's, that narrative makes a ton of sense, right? For uh, for the Fed to, to, to trot out there because Volcker was the one who regained the credibility of the Fed. Um, the Fed largely for 15 years was not credible um, because they could not control inflation. Uh, they, the long end of the curve uh, exploded higher because they could not do anything about it. They tried. That's the part that is not discussed. Uh, you know, we talk about the uh, two and a half, three percent that we're raising rates here as if it's some colossal huge thing that the Fed's doing. Um, you know, William McChesney Martin uh, in 1967 raised interest rates seven and a half percent when inflation was at five and a half, six percent, much actually lower than it is now. Um, and, and uh, you know, took real rates considerably negative um, uh, and caused a very mild recession. Uh, you would have thought it would have caused a much worse recession at the time. But demand it was a go go period of hot demand, similar to now. And the demand and fiscal policy that was going into the to, to the economy was such that uh, he, they, they couldn't even really slow inflation. Inflation came down at one and a half, two percent amidst a mild recession. And they held rates fairly, you know, real rates fairly negative for for some time. Um, uh, so, uh, so I'm sorry, positive. Uh, they kept, they took the, the Fed funds rate above uh, inflation for quite some time. And eventually they, they pivoted, right? And inflation skyrocketed higher um, because the secular driving forces of inflation were, were incredibly strong, um, like we talked about. So um, this happened again with Arthur Burns. Arthur Burns raised, uh, you know, in, in 74, 75, raised interest rates 10.5%. You know, from from three to thirteen and a half percent to battle uh, runaway inflation again, and uh, did you know caused this the the next biggest recession uh, since the Great Depression? So caused a major major downturn in the economy. Uh, it was incredibly unpopular, and what was the response? More fiscal policy, right? And eventually, 
I mean, if you get a massive recession as big as, you know, something as uh, next biggest after the Great Depression, people are not going to put up with it for long enough. And eventually yeah, a pivoted. Um, that's what I assume the Fed would do because it's what they've done every other time, too. We, they haven't been, you know, they, they, they got raised rates 10 and a half percent and we get a massive multi-year uh, recession. They're going to pivot, um, you know, and he pivoted and inflation skyrocketed again. But the, the dialogue is, uh, you know, the narrative that you hear out there is that they didn't they were asleep at the wheel. They didn't do anything. Volcker did the same thing, essentially. And he didn't think he would succeed because it didn't work before. If you listen to his, you know, read his books, you hear to hear his interviews. He was surprised it worked as well. But it was like they, they had tried everything. And so they were just going to do more. And the reason it worked is not because he did more, per se, because he did it twice. OK, um, fine. He did it twice. Um, it's because populism had run its course. There had been 15 years of it at that point. At that point, uh, you know, the middle class had grown. People were calling for more, you know, populist stimulus. And, and they were actually starting to say, listen, you know, we've had enough of this stimulus, right? They're left with this populism. And it's time to move to uh, these other, other um, you know, types of policies. Uh, and there were lots of policies that were being forced. The change came from crisis, uh, much like it always does. And things evolved to, to a much better place. Uh, you know, uh, the geo, we had the beginning of globalization. We had the beginning of, um, you know, uh, a much, much better oil supply because uh, we've had the supply side responses over that period. Um, you know, you can go on and on. Uh, you know, the, uh, the war in Vietnam came to an end, which is an important factor. But all these things cluster, like I was saying, and when they start to turn, um, the, the, the clouds part. And, and yes, Volcker did the right thing in stopping that long-term inflationary expectation, which had taken hold because that was the truth. Long-term inflation was going higher and expectations were higher because the Fed couldn't control long-term inflation. But at some point, he came in at the right time um, and, and did it again and finally broke the back uh, of that psychological piece. But the secular inflation had died. That's why it worked. And so that's just not discussed. Um, and, and everybody just assumes that psychological part, and that's the narrative, is all that matters, um, which couldn't be further from the truth. At the beginning of it, a populist move, an inflationary structural push, um, we, we actually don't have that inflationary mindset, not even close now. Um, you know, again, we've seen the Fed's ability to just crank down the lo long end of the curve. People don't realize, you know, broadly, in, in my opinion, uh, you know, how structural this inflation is. We're seeing that in the data, underlying data, sticky price inflation has actually continued to go up higher. Labor, uh, rents, all the things that are more domestically driven, uh, core CPI is actually <laughs> incredibly strong in the face of this. So this, this market response here, and we can get in more detail, more granular to where we are now, has been very interesting because it really is there's a psychology narrative that the Fed's put out there that we're still in this last 30, 40 year period where they're dominant, and they're credible and they can do whatever. It's just psychological inflation that needs to be taken care of. Um, they're in the short term. They're winning that battle. Um, the, you know, they're going to lose the war. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I um, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in cycles, market cycles. And uh, and it, it strikes me from time to time um, how little we as a, as a whole pay attention to this because you can go back and you can find them. And as you rightly say, I mean, if you do something at the right time, it has an effect, but if you do it at the wrong time, it usually doesn't. And, uh, and so um, it'll be interesting to see, but of course, as some people uh, would argue, uh, one of them uh, I'll come to in a second, you know, it is very likely that we've just seen the, 
the 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 change in the forty year interest rate cycle, and uh, which probably then um, had its low in in two thousand and twenty one. So we're like one year into the next cycle, and already people are talking about you know the Fed uh, is about to lower interest rates and go to zero. I mean. It's interesting, but anyway, I um, we we recently published a, a, a fascinating conversation, I think, with Edward Chancellor, perhaps in you know as, as some people call him the best financial historian out there, and uh, of course he's very current at the moment um, because he just came out with a, a new book um, called The Price of Time, um, and uh, and in it um, he writes about and 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 the conversation he had with Kevin Coldine uh, uh, on the Ideas Lab series. One of the points they were talking about is obviously the consequence of the ultra low. So now we're back to the ultra low interest rates uh, that we've seen, um, which are, you know, uh, I hate the word, but they are really unprecedented when you look at it from a historical point of view uh, in terms of how low they 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 went. Do you yourself have any views of in terms of the potential uh, consequences uh, of of these ultra-low interest rates. Of course, a lot of people talk about the fact that it creates, you know, speculation, bubbles, um, all sorts of bad behavior in the financial markets. But, I mean, is there anything you've sort of thought about when you do your yeah, sort of I mean, big picture thinking? Absolutely. So to go back to your what you were saying before, too, doing uh, the same thing at the wrong time, that worked at the right time can actually have a massively negative feedback loop. Uh, people think, well, you did, it worked for Volcker, just try it again. Uh, what do we have to lose? Well, it can make things worse. And I think that's the thing people don't realize. Um, one, there can be, there's likely to be a more fiscal response, which will actually push a quicker, uh, you know, um, uh, inflationary response, which can make things much more out of control, A. But B, to now your question, your point, about malinvestment. If you've gone so far down a cycle, the most dangerous thing you can do uh, is try and pop that bubble. I mean, this is something that you know we didn't mention, but I think is very important. We've had five periods here in the U.S. where unemployment has uh, has gone over nine uh, percent uh, in the last 150 years. Okay, two of them were reactions to you know, by the Fed to pop, you know, to deal with inflation, to deal with, uh, you know, and those were the ones I referenced in the 1960s and 70s. Two of the uh, another two of the five were bubbles that were created by uh, ultra low interest rates, right? Uh, which they had to pop and, and pop that bubble, which then created uh, a massive recession um, and, and massive unemployment. They have never had to deal with a time where they had a massive bubble and valuation issue based on low interest rates, where they've also had to deal with inflation. That is much harder. In the 60s and 70s, we were not at a valuation bubble. Now investment was not incredibly high. We did not have a massive potential uh, give back on, on some of those, those issues uh, and risks that were, were correlated with popping that bubble at the same time as inflation. So uh, it's important to note this is a, a very volatile situation, uh, much more volatile than the 60s and 70s, I would argue, because of those ultra low interest rates and that malinvestment that you discussed. How does malinvestment work? I mean, again, most people broadly understand this, but I think it's easy, it's important to put a little basic model out there. Um, I, my mental model, it's a very toy model, is the whole economy is basically a, re a real estate investment, right? Uh, you can you can put um, you know twenty five percent down if you borrow, right, on a on an investment property, um, and if interest rates are at six percent and uh, that 
property, uh, cash on cash yield, 6%, you're probably not going to do it. You're just going to buy the property and get your 6% yield. But if interest rates go to four, yeah, you're going to borrow. I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? You're going to go put 25%. You're going to go buy four times as many properties, right? And you're going to make 2% on each of the, uh, the 25% pieces that you uh, you borrowed. So 2%, 2%, 2%, 6% plus the, the 6% yield you had on the other amount, right? Uh, 12% all of a sudden, your price-to-earnings ratio just Double. I mean, you just have half the price earnings ratio. Like uh, your price, to, you know, your your value of your your cash flows is dramatic. Not, people just look look at PE and say, oh, uh, you know, we're at average or just above average price to earnings ratios. This is great. They completely don't look at the leverage under the hood. Um, it's not the the, the fundamental uh, economy hasn't changed, right? All that's changed is there's lower interest rates. Um, and that's fine, you know, okay, as long as those interest rates stay low, uh, sure, you're getting that cash flow. That's great. Um, but when interest rates do go higher uh, and you have to, people have to refinance, right, those, those mortgages or whatever, um, that's a problem. That's level one. Level two is what happens when interest rates go to four and everybody can go buy four times as much property and prove, well, guess what? They start being okay with 5% yielding properties because there's more money out there chasing uh, chasing these returns. Uh, and they can still make 5%, one, you know, one, 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 eight percent, you know, eight percent. They were making six before. It's better than it was before. And that's malinvestment. Again, basic model, but that's what's happening in the economy. We've lowered interest rates to zero, right? Like, uh, and guess what? Over 40 years, lowering interest rates to zero creates a lot of leverage and a lot of malinvestment. So we're seeing record corporate leverage by significant margins, almost, uh, you know, uh, almost twice as much leverage in the system on the corporate side. I think it's gone from 30 to about 50, 52 percent, right, um, you know, uh, in the last 25, 30 years. So, uh, again, this is not the 60s and 70s. We're in a much more leveraged, much more malinvestment uh, period, higher malinvestment. And when interest rates go higher, then you have what's called creative destruction. You destroy that malinvestment. Uh, things go, you know, and, and all these ideas and things that, uh, you know, sending people to Mars and mining asteroids or whatever, right? That these future ideas, which may be cash flow positive at 0% interest rates over the long run and have a positive expectancy can no longer, uh, and there may be great ideas and great technologies that you've developed them on, but they disappear um, or have to be purchased with somebody else who has real cash flows and the value of cash flows matter again. So um, anyway, so th this is my mental model. I think that's where we are. Uh, and, and the Fed's now trying to navigate inflation and interest rates coming up, you know, it, it, with, that, with the risk of popping a, a, a historic um, a bubble. Again, people just look at price to earnings and say, ah, look, it's not that big. It's not a bubble. What do you mean it's a bubble? Price to sales is at record levels. Why? Because margins and leverage make, uh, you know, you know, leverage makes margins lower. And, and the, the globalization that it's push, pushed and the, the technological innovation that it's pushed, all these things are related. That's why we're at record high margins. Those margins are going to revert if interest rates go higher, or, and, and you know, as a result, technological innovation is going to slow, deglobalization is going to continue, right? And the cost of money is going to go up. You're going to get, uh, you know, the, the, the washing of bound investment, the creative destruction, the despair. Margins are going to collapse in the '60s and '70s. That, that, by the way, people keep talking about recession, right? I don't think the recession, which is looking at GDP, is really the issue here. The issue is earnings are going to collapse. You know, I actually think price to sales is going to come, uh, you know, back in line. Uh, you know, we're, we're likely to have strong revenue growth. If you look at the 60s and 70s, it was actually way above trend real economic growth. It was a demand side economic push. 
that's actually the, the economy is going to do quite well. People in the, on the bottom are going to do much better than they, they have uh, over the last 40 years. But that doesn't mean the market's going to do well. That means you're likely to get multiple contraction. You're likely to get, um, you know, uh, margin compression. And I think that's the story. I think that's not talked about. Everybody's talking about a recession and everybody's talking about a slowdown in GDP. I think we're going to get earnings recessions uh, over the next, uh, you know, 15, 20 years. And I think that's that's important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you kind of um, you kind of moved on to an area that I wanted to uh, talk to you about in any in any event, and that is sort of maybe looking at some of the uh, various asset classes and markets. Uh, obviously, the guests that we uh, have uh, in the series, uh, some of them are very specialized in 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 certain areas, and some are more broad based. Um, but I think it's it would be fun to run through some of these asset classes and. And uh, hear kind of your views, and you already started. So let's stay with bonds and and interest rates. I mean, to some degree, um, you can expand on it a little bit more. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you think uh, in terms of where they are heading, uh, both in the U.S. but also if you follow European rates, uh, could be interesting to see what your uh, what your views are, and and maybe in terms of the differences. I'm going to throw a few things at you now, and then we'll um, then you can pick up what you want. Uh, I'm also, I mean, I'm also interested in. I think also you wrote about the the yield curve inversion. Um, I'd love to hear what you think that's telling us at the moment. Obviously, we know what the populace uh, opinion are in terms of what yield curve inversion means, but let's hear what you think about that. I'm curious about what does this all mean given the fact that QT hasn't really even started. I mean, the way they implement these programs, it takes a long time before you get real balance sheet reduction um, through QT pro, uh, programs. Um, I think that's an interesting area as well. And, you know, we were speaking about ultra-low uh, low interest rates before, but I think we also have to take into account the fact that now they're raising them at an ultra-fast pace, um, much faster than what we've seen you know what? What? What does that mean? <laughs> in in a sense, anyway, just some ideas. I'm sure you'll forget some of them. And I'll try <laughs> yeah, steer me back when I, them, when I go but, off. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Fork. But let's start with the inversion of the yield curve. That's probably the the, the best place to start. Um, for 40 years, every single bond trader who's ever traded, every algo that's ever looked at data for you know any reasonable amount of time, uh, that's been profitable. Uh, you know, when the Fed starts uh, increasing in interest rates at the rates they do, the models say, hey, uh, long term interest rates uh, are, are you know, we're going to cause a recession because that's what's happened every other time. And that, by extension, will drive interest rates lower. It will drive people markets down, will drive people into uh, safety right uh, of, of the 10 year uh, and long. And, and so if that's going, you know, the models assume that. That means you've got to, uh, you know, crank down uh, interest rates, and the best trade at that point uh, is to go buy very short uh, uh, duration as as a hedge, right, or, or sell it as a hedge, right, and, and to invert the the curve, right. To, um, and so that's what's happening. Uh, and if you listen to bond traders or people who have been in that market uh, for uh, for quite some time. That's the simple argument. It's not any more complex than that. Uh, that's Macro Alpha and Andrea Stano's argument, right? Uh, we've had this conversation uh, on our interview with them. And uh, listen, they're bond traders. Like, I respect it. I'm not, right? I get it. Uh, and it's important to hear that. But it's 40 years of data. Uh, and and, uh, and how do you say all of a sudden, how do you break down and say maybe the Fed raising interest rates, right, isn't actually not going to slow long-term 
inflation. It just is going to slow short-term inflation, which is what happened in the 60s and 70s. Um, when, when there's no recent data for that, A. B, um, you know, how do you, how do you say, uh, you know, if, you know, if we get a recession, right, is, uh, you know, that, that people aren't going to rush, you know, it can't be an inflationary period at the same time. Uh, this idea of stagflation uh, breaks down all those models. And we haven't seen stag stagflation for, for 45 years, really. Um, so, um, you know, again, my argument is for you, the, you know, stagflation. I think that's what's coming. I think it's, uh, it's not massive, like 15% inflation with us in recession. It's probably more like uh, four and a half uh, percent uh, inflation uh, with us uh, in, in, a, in a slow GDP, you know, a GDP, a small, shallow uh, recession. Um, where earnings really get hit, um, and, and uh, you know, wages uh, you know don't come down dramatically, um, and, and so in that scenario, which again is not in the data, um, you know, the actual worst thing you went on is is uh, twos ten long, the, yeah, short the twos, long the tens. Uh, you know that, you know, I think you're getting a forty five basis point credit right now um, to to own. Uh, you know, uh, the 10 year at, at 275 or 28 or wherever it is right now, the yield at 28, uh, I'm saying, I'm sorry, I keep talking yields and, and switching back and forth. No worries. Um, but, but I think that's a, an incredible um, opportunity round right now. You get positive carry and can a 10 year in the short term, you know, decline to, you know, the yield decline to two and a half, two and a quarter, even two. Sure. Um, but you're getting enough of a credit here. And I think, uh, the long-term secular trend is very much in place, and I think people are discounting the power and importance of politics and populism and, and what actually the, the reaction function behind the markets looks like. Um, that piece, I think, is critical, and that's not a data set or something that people run models on, right? Uh, you know, and mo broadly, models are saying, uh, you know, follow uh, the historic kind of path. Um, but again, uh, people are like, well, don't fight the bond market. The bond market's usually right. Well, and, you know, up until last year, sure, you know, it, it wasn't right, uh, you know, uh, six, nine months ago, right? Couldn't have been more wrong. Um, and I think the Fed's telling you the same thing. Again, the Fed's more aware of this stuff than the average public is. They look at the big picture. They know the history. Um, you know, they're trying to control the narrative and do the best they can. Um, but, you know, the Fed's been out very vocally saying, listen, that 10-year, you know, 10-year uh, inflation expectations you guys have and, and what you're expecting for our battle here is is dramatically underestimating things. Uh, the pivot that, that the market's pricing right now is not just in my opinion, but in the Fed's opinion, uh, insane. You you should probably listen to the Fed on that. Um, so so again, I, you know, always dangerous to go uh, disagree with the market. Um, I, I hear you on that, um, uh, but every bond trader out there is saying the same thing, which I that makes me feel pretty good. Um, you know, when when very few people are agreeing with my view, uh, because actually. Um, I, I actually think what's what's happening here is a very basic. And, and again, every argument's the same, which is this, uh, you know, hey, the Fed's going to raise interest rates and that's going to cause a recession. And by extension, that means, you know, long term rates have to uh, yields have to come come down. That That's the simple argument. 
uh, I disagree with a lot of parts of that argument. I think the Fed will slow the economy eventually they, if they're very aggressive. Um, but uh, I think ultimately secular inflation is here to stay. So, uh, you know, if anything, that that means, uh, you know, the two year uh, inflation should uh, yield uh, should should stay there or, or come down. Right. I'm OK with that. But I think they got the wrong part of the curve. Um, you know, they're they're pricing it. And I think, again, that the 10 year on out yield uh, is going to actually secularly trend higher. So I would I would ex- expect a steepener um, to really take take hold in the next year. And I think when that happens, I think we're going to see a general loss of credibility at the Fed. That's that's what I'm actually looking for uh, here in the next year. Or so this this loss of faith that the Fed can actually control long term inflation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that um, I mean, I think that's universal, not just for the Fed. I think, you know, the loss of faith in central banks um, could be the major shoe to drop, so to speak, in the next couple of years. And that's going to create market behavior that I don't think any of us can really imagine. I think that's, for me, um, what I'm taking away from the last uh, couple of years in the markets is just this thing about I think we've lost uh, collectively the our imagination of what markets can do. Uh, I think we all expect them to somehow fall back into line, if I can put it that way. Um, and I think there's way too little being um, priced into um, the unimaginable, really, and and things not panning out the way uh, everyone expects. Um, and so um, time will tell. I mean, just the fact that obviously we've had a pandemic, we've had we now have a war in Europe, and we have in many other crises, uh, y- you know. Um, and then at the same time, um, we're seeing um, the fastest pace in terms of rate hikes uh, happening um, at some point, maybe also some serious QT uh, if they can, uh, if they deliver on their promise. All of these things to me in itself should indicate, well, then the markets wouldn't go, isn't, they're not going to react like we just uh, want them to or expect them to. There's going to be some some big surprises along the way. But I want to move on because obviously we we can uh, go on for a long time and we don't have that uh, unlimited amount of time today. But I want to touch on uh, a couple of other asset classes. And the other one that I'm just uh, cu- curious about is, of course, uh, equities because it's such a big part of everybody's portfolio. People kind of tend to focus on that um, probably more so than fixed income, even though fixed income is a much bigger market. And of course, you are you know, the expert in volatility. And I wonder whether volatility, how how far out can it guide you in terms of your views on on, on, on equity markets? And and also what other factors um, kind of plays a role in, in your view on 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 the future of, of stocks? And I know none of us, I mean, we, we don't, uh, we're not trying to predict where the, where the Dow Jones is going to be at the end of the year or anything like that, but just sort of broadly speaking, uh, what do you think might happen? Yeah, so I like to start when I think about these things uh, five plus years out, right? Think about the big trend. And then uh, that those trends often have very little to do with what happens the next uh, quarter or month, much less week or day. Um, but they do matter. Uh, and I like to, so I like to work my way back um, from these things. And and again, I've kind of given you my broad uh, view on, on five-year uh you know, interest rates. Uh, what does that mean for equities? Let's let's uh, let's talk about that. Um, if you look at you know sixty eight to eighty two, kind of the last time we had secularly increasing interest rates. If 
I believe that interest rates, which have gone from the top left to the bottom right for 40 years are now have a much higher probability at the very least of going bottom left to top right. What does that mean? Uh, again, I don't think that's discussed enough. Uh, you know, I think, what does that mean for everything? Uh, well, historically, the last data set we have is 68 to 82, that kind of general period. What did stocks do in the U.S.? Nominally, nominally went nowhere for 14 years. It's hard for people to imagine. We've had 15% uh, nominal uh, you know, appreciation per year uh, in the last 30 years or so. Um, so go, going nowhere for 14 years is a big deal. That's nominally, to be clear, real, real performance uh, was you would have lost 70% of the value of your money over that 14 years. Um, if you're in markets, never mind the volatility you saw along the way on a risk-adjusted basis, that doesn't look so good. Um, Passive investment, um, people think it's like a new innovation. That, you know, that, that, that crazy that they didn't think about passive investment, uh, you know, before, you know, uh, 30 years ago. Um, no, it's not crazy. It's because market didn't work. People didn't passively invest because, because it didn't make any sense. Um, uh, and that was the, the, the golden age of, of active investment, right? Um, and, and because you needed an edge. Uh, alpha mattered. You had to have some real, and fundamentals actually mattered because cash flows mattered. Um, and again, I've talked about this, but fundamentals don't really matter if money is free. What matters is long term, the idea, uh, you know, having a better idea and winning over the long run if interest rates are low. Like uh, fundamentals on a cash flow basis, cash flow does money's worthless. So cash flow doesn't matter. It's market share. It's it's power. It's uh, you know, but when interest rates go up. Those cash flows are much more valuable, much more important because they mean that you, you can survive, that you can buy back your stock, you can buy other corporations and ideas, you can develop things because the Fed's not giving away that money. And so fundamentals matter more. So active management, it's, it's a you know much more important thing during periods like that. You could have done very well in stocks that period if you own the right stocks, right? Uh, and the right businesses. Um, so in my view, uh, you know, we're at record price to sales. Uh, margins are at record levels. Because of all the reasons I've extolled, uh, you know, uh, we are, uh, you know, we're likely to see a real difficult time ahead, long term, ten year forward, uh, for for markets on a nominal basis, and with interest rates rising, bonds won't be a place to hide, right? Um, and and so so broadly, you're, you know, there's, it's a tough thing to do. Active management, finding an edge, figuring out what that edge is, whether it's fundamentals, whether it's uh, you know, again, trend following and, and some active management, whether it's volatility trading, some type of uh, edge that, that has a real substance to it and be in that business, being things that cash flow positive in real, uh, real terms, businesses, real businesses that make money will do well. Um, but it, it's, uh, you know, you're going to get multiple contraction. That's what we see during periods of inflation. You're going to see the, the death of the duration trade because money's not free and, and people have to make money in, in the short term. You know, you're going to see margin compression uh, along the way, particularly for you know entities that are relying on on labor input and uh, you know um, commodity inputs. Right, that's going to be um, a problem. You're going to see a slowing of technological innovation. Um, I think in the next you know, 15, you know, 10, 15 years, it doesn't happen overnight, right? But you're going to see a lot of bow investment get uh, liquidated along the way. So. Generally, these things start, you know, we saw a 45, I think, percent decline in the markets at the beginning of the inflationary uh, period, uh, that 60s, 60s and 70s, right? 
Um, you saw multiple 75, 80% rallies. So it's not like the market just sits and goes sideways and volatility dies. You see a very volatile active market with lots of crises. We had two major recessions uh, over the course of five, six years. Um, and again, a lot of geopolitical strife, a lot of internal strife here in the US and globally as well. Um, so I would expect a very difficult period. You talk to people who are you know, baby boomers who were around, uh, you know, in their prime in the 60s and 70s, and they thought the world was going to end. It was, you know, people was, you know, when JFK got shot and Martin Luther King Jr. got shot in the U.S. Again, I'm more U.S. centric, but this is true globally as well. It was a time of incredible geopolitical strife, but it caused lots of change. That's, I think, the important thing. I don't want to come across. I think we come across this so negative all the time. I want to be clear, like these are actually things that need to happen to cause positive change. Uh, you look at World War II, it was an awful thing. The world almost came apart of the seams. But look what that caught, created and look at the peace and growth and things that it created over the long run. Look at the 60s and 70s and all the strife that we saw there. But guess what it led to in the U.S. and other places, more quality, more growth and expansion that came after it. So these things, these crises are actually needed to reform and to cause change. If you don't have them, they're, they're, they're actually bigger problems. So that's like the silver lining. I do think the equity market, though, is going to have a very difficult time. And to be clear, if you're in cash, you're going to just do, do just as poorly with less volatility. Um, so it's just a difficult time to invest. You know, bonds, uh, you know, are, are not going to do, you know, if, they, if we go from 2.75 in the 10-year to, to 12% or something crazy over the course of a decade, you're going to get destroyed, right? Um, so uh, there aren't a lot of places to hide. Uh, there are, you know, places you can do okay. And again, that's focus on fundamentals and cash flow, which again is a crazy thing. People, you say that now, discount cash flow, people laugh because 40 years is a long time, but that stuff matters again. Knowing what you own and making sure it's a business that can outpace inflation, right? Uh, that's low leverage uh, or that doesn't need to re, right? re-roll their leverage. Um, you know, those types of things, um, you know, that's, that's the guiding light. Um, difficult period for equities. I agree with you. Of course, um, I don't have a crystal ball, but that's what it looks like to, to me as well. I did see some people talk about, you know, when markets retrace from a bear market more than 50%, that that's already a sign that we're into a new bull market. And we may be, who knows. Um, but just, just for the record, I, I did look up, uh, um, you know, kind of a little bit of historical examples of this. And this is sort of, some of it is the S&P and some of it is the uh, the Dow Jones. But Maybe just to uh, to mention to uh, our listeners, I mean, in 1937, uh, we retraced within 3% of the uh, high that was in October uh, of 2037 before uh, we moved, pushed down to new record lows. In uh, 1973, it went within 6% of the high from November 1st, 1973, before we head into uh, the what turned out to be the ultimate bear market. And uh, 2000, most, some people will remember 2000, we got in within 2% uh, from the high of March 24, 2000, uh, March 24, 2000, before we started the real bear market that lasted until I think March of 2002 or something like that. And then of course, in 2008, uh, we were within 8% of the high from November 10th, 2007, before we moved into the bear market that ended in March 2009. So these things happen. I want to add one thing, uh, and I should give credit where credit is due, um, because I was listening to Stephanie Pomboy, um, and uh, one of the things she mentioned, uh, we already talked about the Fed, uh, don't want to be caught uh, sleeping at the wheel, um, but one other uh, 
profession seems to be um, having kind of the same uh, flashback uh, to 2008, and that is the uh, corporate rating uh, agencies because she mentioned uh, that um, that they have flipped corporate rating credit ratings from two to one in favor of upgrades in January of this year, and now we're at two to one in favor of downgrades. Um, so definitely things are changing. Now, before we wrap up completely, there are a couple of things I just wanted to ask you further a little bit about. Uh, obviously, uh, there's been a lot of talk about currencies, in particular the dollar. You already mentioned the dollar. Some people are looking for a certain milkshake uh, situation where the dollar will suck up all the liquidity and just continue to get stronger. The crypto space have, at least as far as I can tell for a while, been predicting the complete opposite, uh, the demise of the dollar as a reserve currency uh, and significantly uh, lower dollar from here. Um, just very quickly, uh, Jim, where, where do you stand on this if you have an opinion? Yeah, this is uh, one of those places where you know, Peter Zion has definitely shifted my view on this, and luckily he did it early. Look, the U.S., uh, you know, again, I grew up all over the world, so I don't want you to take this as, a, you know, an American-centric uh, nationalistic thing. Um, America has a lot of uh, uh, strengths uh, that, that you know, that are immutable. And those are we have commodity independence, obviously very important during this time. We're an island on the other side of the, the world that, uh, is, you know, doesn't have a lot of as much uh, geopolitical, you know, risks of war, et cetera. Obviously, there's always risks, right? But that you know, biggest military in the world, largest economy in the world, all of these things. Um, and most importantly, sorry, rule of law, right? Uh, this idea that uh, you know, if, you know, we're a very litigious society that's lots of, uh, caused lots of problems, but you you better believe that if you, uh, if, if you make an investment somewhere that, that, you know, for the most part, I guess, and they, as long as you don't break the laws in some other way, like Russia has, right? That you're going to, you know, get that, that money back. Um, whereas I don't think that's true in China, right? I don't think that's true in a lot of other third world countries. So all of these things, uh, you know, America's you know not going away tomorrow, at least uh, you know in a t- geopolitical time of stress. Where can you put your money? Where can you be safe? Um, and and I think that view is uh, you know clearly on the biggest strongest ship out there uh, with unlimited fuel and with uh, you know uh, the largest cannons and. Uh, you know, and uh, actually a, a system where, you know, not perfect. I'm not sitting here saying America's uh, perfect. There's lots of problems here internally, um, but but it's probably the safest place on the on the planet. And and uh, we don't know, maybe, you know, is Bitcoin uh, safe or is it not safe? Right. Is it, uh, you know, is, is gold ultimately going to be a store of value or not? Uh, sure. Uh, you could argue that it has been historically and, it, and that those are reasonable places to hide out, I guess. But uh, I think, uh, you know, the most confidence you can probably have is that it is in, um, you know, in America and power and strength. Right. Um, so especially in a time of great volatility and great potential leptocurtic nature of markets leverage, uh, I think we know uh, how, you know, this world, uh, you know, there's a, it, more money than there's ever been uh, with more leverage than there's ever been and fewer places to hide. Um, so I do think dollar strength is, uh, you know, secularly here to stay. I think, um, you know, I think there are other, a few other places I actually think, uh, you know, the, obviously given the commodity issues in, in Europe, um, you know, uh, and some of the structural issues of, of, you know, Southern versus Northern countries and uh, whatnot there, um, there's some doubts there, but I think in the long run, I think Europe will be, you know, the Euro will be a very good place to hide as well as, you know, Swiss Franc, other places that we, 
you know, there are other, uh, again, currencies that are, but I think broadly developed economies that, that, uh, that are somehow, you know, commodity secure increasingly is probably the best place to be. Yeah, and I, I don't uh, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I'm always a little bit concerned when um, when there's too many things that lines up, um, you know, as yeah, with all of this happening for the U.S. and the U.S. dollar, it has to get stronger, right? Uh, I'm always a little bit concerned about that. And of course, Pippa Malgram in our conversation, or maybe it was Peter Zion, I don't know, didn't put much credence to my my thesis about a a dual strike by submarines from the east and west by China and Russia on the U.S. coasts. But anyways, um, you know, hopefully that definitely won't happen. Oh, but I mean, to be clear, if we go to war, like real world war, yeah, there will be war on our shores as well. And, and uh, yeah, we are not fully secure, but it's... Well, this is the thing, right? I'm just thinking that there are so many signs that things are changing, right? And, and again, going back to this point about expecting the unexpected everybody says well you know as you say us is an island nothing can happen well we hear about you know russia having now torpedoes that can run 10,000 miles straight into the us i mean anything can Absolutely. happen if that's true so Absolutely. so anyways yeah. i, I want to start to wrap up uh, i still have so many other things we um, we could talk about but we will we'll do that in in the not too distant future but maybe to wrap things uh, up a little bit putting everything together we have energy crisis we have food crisis um you mentioned you know gold um we have the whole geopolitical situation we have demographics we have something that you and i have talked about also um this idea of a fourth turning taking place right now i guess what investors really want to do uh or, or want to hear is just a little bit about you know so how do we deal with this how do we invest how do we position ourselves for a future like that. Um, so maybe to wrap up, just sort of your big picture thoughts in terms of what investors should be um, considering um, at this point. In yeah, time. so hard assets, um, things of real fundamental value, ideally something that uh, yields uh, something on top of that fundamental value. Um you know, that's not a new idea in terms of uh, inflation, but that can be co companies, to be clear. I don't want to sit here and say, you know, you know co corporations are actually, we're going to have, a, I think, above trend. This is, uh, you know, GDP growth. I think revenue growth is going to be great. Um, I think margins are going to, and it's not going to go in a straight line. I'm not saying in the next year. I'm really talking the next decade, right? Um, but I, I do think, uh, you know, we're going to get more and more demand uh, side economics, uh, demand side policy globally. Um, uh, and that's because we're going to have more unrest. That's because we have more populism. That's because, um, you know, that's what the people are going to call for. And, and I think we will see more change. Um, I think that change will ultimately be very good. We'll get a rebalancing, a deleveraging. This is a, you know, a period of deleveraging. So, but in the meantime, yeah, hard assets, uh, ideally with long-term duration uh, leverage, right? Go buy, uh, some real estate, even at these interest rate levels, uh, I think it's a good, you know, especially something that uh, will, you know, rents will increase. Um, you know, we have, we didn't talk about demographics uh, here in the U.S., but we have a millennial bubble here in the U.S. True, a lot of uh, other other countries as well. That's increasing demand that has been, had, had very slow household formation. We have pent-up demand coming, and that's the party, the entity that's going to get the most fiscal uh, stimulus going forward. So go to the root of what those people want. 
sell them things, right? They are going to be get the ones with the money. It's a demand side economy. Go to the seat of government. I think that's, I've, I've mentioned this before, but government is, you know, we've seen throughout history, these cycles where, where broadly people uh, trust in capital markets to be the best allocator of, of money. And then we go through periods where we say, listen, that's not fair. We need to, the government needs to be an allocator of capital for more fair policy. Um, and when that happens, which is broadly, I think, where we are, whether we re- rationally think about it that way or not, uh, you want to go to what government's going to spend money on. Now, what is government spending? Just go look at the budgets. It's healthcare, right? I think healthcare is going to have, I think we're going to revolutionize healthcare. I think it's been underinvested in for quite some time, not just here in the US, but globally. I think it's going to, the, the power of technology is the ultimate science. We should be, you know, that should be way further along if you look at where other sciences are. Um, not just in terms of health outcomes, but also how it operates and how inefficient it is. So I think healthcare, defense, right? Uh, I think that's a, a, a major spending point. It's been growing for some time. I think that's a great place. Uh, again, uh, housing and, and urban development, right? Um, infrastructure. I mean, these are these are places where money is going to be flowing, and, and it's at the mouth of the the river. You know, go go to the mouth of the river um, and, and invest in, in those businesses. So I think there's just like any other time of change, tremendous opportunity. This is not like, oh, markets are going to be tough, like you know, hole up in a corner and keep your money in cash. No, I think this is a time of an inflection point in markets. And, and I think you're going to see some very huge opportunities in terms of active management being in the right place, long the right place and short, uh, you know, uh, the right place. I think those are ultimately you know, those tremendous opportunities. Maybe to uh, add to your um, sort of uh, view, I don't know if you want to take this on. Um, not sure how I feel about it anyways, but I'm going to throw it out there anyways. Um, and, and maybe it ties into this idea of a false turning. But I did notice a Bloomberg headline today um, talking about uh, Michael Burry from The Big Short, that he had sold all his equities and had only one equity left, and that's prisons, a company that invests in prisons in the US. <laughs> so so may, maybe that is the ultimate uh, hedge against um, yeah. what, what may be coming. Yeah, there's, um, yeah, there's, there's always the argument, uh, you know, why buy gold, buy guns, right? That, that guns versus gold trade. But yeah, defense, you know, I, I think defense stocks are very a great place to be. Uh, pretty, you know, growing secular trend, um, for example. And again, there's there's lots of Again, that sounds very apocalyptic. I, I, again, I, I don't think it plays out as, you know, in that way over the, the long term. I think there's going to be, it's going to feel that way and the narrative will be there. So that will also help those stocks. But, but yeah. yeah. I think from, from, from my point of view, I'm not going to go into any sort of particular details. I think people um, know that I, um, uh, I love the asset class, uh, asset class that I work with every day. I'm sure you do the same. But I will say one thing that you mentioned earlier that I actually think is really important. And that is this flip from um, what people believe now is the uh, way to invest and that's passive to what I think will be the way to invest in the future and that's active. Because you mentioned hard hard resources or natural resources or hard assets. Um, and I just know how hard that is to invest in from a long only point of view because actually most commodities, they in a 30-year odd cycle, they will go down for 20 of those years and only up for about 10 of those years. So um, so I think active will um, be really important uh, in the world we are heading into and, and probably for the next 
couple of decades, even though nobody has a, a crystal ball for that long. But I just think there, there's fundamentally something changing uh, in that area. Yeah, I, and uh, you know, as a volatility manager, I do want to 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 say, you know, I think a, a broad trend that's not talked about is I think internal volatility to markets, meaning the rotation around different. Uh, you know, ideas and themes and, and, and places of, of strength and weaknesses, uh, true in, in, in bond market, true in, in the equity market, true in FX. I think vol of, of the entities dispersion probably is going to do incredibly well for an extended period of time. Uh, it'll have you know really strong periods of performance. That said, I think broad equity vol, you know, in the short term, I think we'll get some. That's, you know, the next year, year and a half. I think we're going to have this kind of leg down uh, and this rebalancing. Um, but uh, broadly, you have to remember six, seven percent annual, whatever it ends up being for the next five, ten years. Uh, you know, maybe it's a little lower. Inflation is a credit to downside every year, and if we think GDP is going to grow at a relatively strong clip, you're also getting a credit every year to the downside uh, in terms of cash flow. So I think broadly, again, if you look at again 68 to 82, 14 years the market went nowhere. I think long term, we've never actually seen a time with options. And inflation, really. And, and, you know, options were really released, you know, in the, in the late 70s, really not used till the 80s. So I think uh, there is this uh, this skew in the market, I think, will continue to be to underperform on broad equities uh, and, and uh, you know, in, in equity markets. I think uh, you'll get some declines and you get some uh, some rallies. And I think there'll be periods where you'll do very well in just broad vol. But I think cross asset vol uh, you know, uh, rates fall, FX fall. There's a lot of places of like where you're going to get really leptocritic outcomes. Um, but it'll be really interesting to see how the broad market uh, performs. I think everybody's focused on hedging that broad market risk because they're thinking about 2008, 2009. They're thinking about, and again, I think in the short term, uh, you know, we all will do quite well. Um, and again, there'll be less uh, just structural upside in the market for extended period of times. Um, but I, but I but I do think that's an interesting trend that's not being talked about. Yeah, exactly. And I think for for me, it comes down to this thing about you know the the end of the carry regime, which is in a, in another way you could say it's the end of the convergent uh, market regime, and it's this introduction uh, or or re- return to a divergent market um, regime, which is exactly what you talk about. Um, and and of course, the, we all know there are only a few strategies that are actually well designed for that. Um, so, uh, but there we are. Jim, let's wrap up for now. Um, I know you'll be back in a few weeks in any event. Um, so um, just want to thank you for uh, for doing this. I think it was, this was fun. Um, and maybe if, if people like what they heard today, maybe we should do this kind of format um, a few times a year. It's nice to uh, also be able to... Uh, to share views rather than just uh, ask the questions, of course. So, so maybe that will be a uh, something that we will uh, return to. And uh, if anyone out there likes what they heard today, of course, uh, one way of showing it is to leave a rating and review. Um, it only takes five minutes, and it's a good way to showing um, that you love the show and a way for people to find uh, the show much easier. Alan is back uh, next week with a great conversation with a $50 billion plus pension plan CIO. And I can assure you it's a great conversation because it's already recorded. So I know what's in it. So you don't want to miss that one. From Jim and me, thanks ever so much uh, for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. 
If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you, and to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.